This is the Real Estate Investing Abundance Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Allen. I just want to take a moment to introduce you to our company, Steed Talker Capital. Steed Talker Capital is a real estate investment firm. If you'd like to learn more about real estate investing, head over to our website, steedtucker.com. And while you're there, take a moment to get your one-page guide to the 10 Steps to Passive Real Estate Investing. Downloading this PDF will also enroll you in our Enlightened Investor Circle. And by enrolling in the Enlightened Investor Circle, you'll be the first to know about any new investment opportunities that we are getting involved with. Look forward to hearing from you. Enjoy today's show. Hello, Enlightened Investors. Welcome back to Real Estate Investing Abundance. I'm your host, Dr. Allen, and I'm so delighted to be back with you again today. And we are going to learn the secret of thinking like a private lender. With us is Ian Walsh, and he is the co-founder of Hard Money Bankers. He started the real estate investing in 2007. He built one of the largest wholesaling companies in Philadelphia at the time, and then he built the largest property management company in Philadelphia. So Ian, tell us about a memorable experience that helped you to be who you are today. Yeah, I guess maybe one to describe me uh, would have been, I was never a very good student. So to answer that question, I had to think of two scenarios. One is maybe just kind of how I think. And the other is an example of how I learned to work, like really work. And uh, But I, I ch- I'm going to choose the one that's a little more entertaining, I think. So in high school, when I was in high school, I've, o- I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. Like I've always just never done well in, in an hourly job. It's just never been my thing. And um, I remember in high school, I had transferred high schools and there was a, a credit transfer that occurred where it was a unique scenario. And I realized, I think it was my senior year that, hey, my credit's the transfer from my prior high school technically would have me graduate if I just stopped going to school right now. So I was like, I'm just going to stop going to school and test that. So so my senior year in high school, I just stopped going one day or I would just go do whatever I wanted, go wherever I wanted, not really go to class. People didn't know what to make of it. Well, about a month into doing that, I got pretty bored. And um, oh, I was always looking for ways to make money that would make sense. And I had a buddy in school in school that had developed the largest most popular Britney Spears website on the planet at that time, which was Hmm. kind of an interesting thing, right? But more interesting than that was that it was the early days of advertising in the internet. So you were getting paid like four or $5 per click on his site is what he was getting paid. So this is like a 16 year old high school kid making 10, 15 grand a month, something like that. It's just, you know, it's pretty outrageous, right? So I said, that was highly interesting to me. And I'm thinking in my head, why isn't anybody else interested in this? So I met with them and I said, hey, let's put something together. Let's form this network of, I'll form like, I'll do one for like Mandy Moore and InSync and all these, you know, whatever pop bands were out there, didn't matter to me as long as the traffic was coming in. So we formed this network. I'm skipping school. Nobody's really saying anything. So I spent about six months doing this and we end up building a network of sites where we have the most traffic, a ton of traffic coming. And then somebody, then the vice principal eventually calls me in and goes, Hey, uh, what are you doing? You know, you're not coming to school. You think you're going to graduate? I was like, well, technically I found, you know, I found the loophole in the system and you're going to have to graduate me. And she was like, unreal. So she realized that she couldn't not have me graduate, but she said, look, just so it's not ridiculous. Can you at least come to school for 
the next few weeks. And I said, fine. So I kind of got distracted from the site that we had built and I was going to college and I didn't know anything really back then. So what I just kind of let it fade off. Well, he continued, the individual that had, had, had built it continued the network. And uh, later I found out later in college that he sold it, sold the business for a million dollars cash that we had built. And I wasn't mad. I wasn't mad. I was actually looking at it saying, Hey, what a lesson. I said, you know, when an opportunity like that stands in front of me again, I won't miss it. And um, so I learned how to build it. You know, at, at age of 16, 17, I learned how to build something, really build something. And that generated real revenue and was really worth something. So I didn't reap any of the financial rewards of that at the time, but that, and that, I'm not, I didn't, you know, it's fine. I'm totally friendly with the guy. So that's kind of a, who I am, how I am and how I always, you know, my stories tend to be that kind of, that kind of story, whether it's skipping school, a terrible student, somehow making money. Like that's, that's just who I am. That's who I am. Well, thank you for sharing that interesting story for sure. Well, how do private lenders analyze deals in a changing market, which we most definitely are in at this point in time? Yeah. So it's interesting. So as we shift in the last 10, since 2008, really, it's just been like an uphill move. And uh, there's been, the market has been able to save everybody along the way. You make a mistake, market goes up 30, you know, 10%, covers up the mistake. You look like you're smart kind of thing. Well, now we're in a shifting market where that's not the case. And the market is, it's odd right now. Actually, if you asked me six months ago, I would say it's softer. Now I'm asking, you ask me again today and I go, for some on apparent reason, it's got strength again. It makes with no literally makes no sense. But when it was really softening and the interest rates started to go up, you know, your comparable sales were no longer any good. They they, they weren't like so. Whatever mm-hmm. sold six months ago was you know four percent interest rate, and today you're basing it on a seven percent interest rate. So your buying power is totally different. There's still this odd lack of inventory with a high level of demand going on, which makes no sense. Um, that'll balance out just from the laws of economics at some point. But you know, when, when the market was shifting, we couldn't look at a comparable, even though you go, oh yeah, there was a clear comparable sale. You know, X Y Z price. You know, two months ago, it's not good anymore, and that that happens in a shifting market. In 2008, that happened on the way down with the crash. You couldn't go outside of 90 days to pull your comparables. So as the market bounces up and down, really cash becomes king. So as a private lender, you know, I'm looking at a deal saying, all right, I'm basing it less value on the asset than I normally do, and more value on the borrowers skin the game. So whereas maybe you bring 20% to the table, you could easily end up bringing 40 or 50% to the table because it goes, you know, I look at it and go, I don't know. And you don't know. And we don't know what that real resale value is going to be with this market shifting. So I'm going to put a layer of defense between me and that market with your cash. And that's, you know, that, that makes the lender sweat less. And so you're going to see, you know, right now there's the whole 5% down thing. That's, I mean, you're not 10% down. You're not seeing that anymore. So any lenders that are really still in the game that are really doing any real kind of lending, you're going to be, you know, you see that higher amount of cash to close. And that's simply to protect the lenders, what they're doing. They're, they're saying, all right, if we're going to do this, we need you to have real, you know, more skin in the game because we don't know where it's going to fall and you're going to have to insulate our position. Yeah, and that it is definitely a strange market. It just isn't doing what what you would think it should be doing. And I don't know. I don't know how it has stayed as stable as it has over these last uh, couple of months, because certainly the indicators were not there that that's what was going to happen. So it is uncertain times to be sure. So what are the biggest concerns with this unstable market that could well it could go either way essentially? Yeah, I mean the biggest concerns are just well one that why what's going on? Like it does not make sense. Like economic and what I think is happening is we're just seeing. A, like 
the buyer and seller balancing is just one's lagging the other in a slower speed. It's not, you know, we're so used to, you know, if you watch the stock market all day, you can, you can watch it instantly balance. So mm. it just doesn't balance that fast in real estate. So I think if one is catching up to the other, there's a lag that's occur that's going to occur. And there's going to have to be a catalyst to balance that out. So you still have this low inventory, that doesn't make any sense, you know, with, with higher, with less buying power, it doesn't make any sense. You still have COVID exodus happening from different cities and so forth. So these weird things, are happening right now. The concerns that I would have in the market are that are the the things that don't make sense. And honestly, you know, we just saw the banks get SVB and, and Signature Bank get wiped off the map. That's not done. That that's not over. That 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 happened as a huge. That was a canary in a coal mine scenario. That wasn't a one an isolated incident. The Fed just backed up and said, Hey, we're good. That's not what's happening here. Mm -hmm. So I, in all honesty, I think you're, I think the dollar is getting crushed and I think it's getting crushed behind the scenes. And I think there's going to be a, a scenario very shortly that's going to balance this market out. And when I say balance, it could mean make sense of it. It doesn't mean balance as in come back to strength. I mean, it could make sense of, Oh, that's what had to happen to get all the inventory on the market, mm -hmm. you know, and all of a sudden, whether it's foreclosures or whatever it may be, something is going to occur and it's going to have to occur quickly soon because mm -hmm. of the, the, how unbalanced it is. So those, those are my, those are my concerns. I don't, this, this wall street thing is or whatever the banking system thing is not done. No, it definitely is not. And it isn't just, um, it's not just the banking system. Like you said, the dollar uh, is going to lose value. Well, I mean, obviously, the dollar is going to lose value because it has lost its hegemony in the world and it's not going to get it back. Saudi Arabia is trading oil in the Chinese yuan, and I believe Russia is also using the Chinese yuan to exchange. And then the BRICS is coming back into play, and not only the five original BRICS, but they are opening membership to other nations. Saudi Arabia has already applied, I believe, and Iran is thinking about it. Mexico is thinking about it. Argentina is probably going to be applying soon. And so things are changing in the world tremendously, and people in the United States are just marching on like nothing has happened. And yet, if you look at uh, at the world economy, there has been seismic changes. Uh, they just haven't hit yet, but they are going to, and they're going to hit like Yeah. That. And, 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 and the white elephant in the room is the CBDCs. Like, what, whoa, like, what is, what are we doing there? That's a big one. Um, that is, that's a whole other level of conversation. And we have Fed now coming in in July, they announced it. So Fed now, I mean, we're, they're rolling this thing out in order to get the, in order to get the American public to accept it, you're going to have to do something to change confidence levels in the dollar or increase it in, you know, it's yeah. a tough sell, but you could force the, you could probably force the public into using CBDCs. And then you're talking an entire another level of control oversight, things that change the, change the world, change the economy at a, at a level we've never seen. Enlightened investors, if you haven't done so already, be sure and click that like button and also click that share so others can take advantage of the content. And finally, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of our upcoming episodes. Yeah, yeah. And I just don't have the knowledge and the wisdom to really predict how all this is going to turn out, but it's a seismic shift in the yeah. world, world affairs here. Well, how can you fund deals without appraisals? 
So I get that question a lot. And uh, I guess it really just comes back to being a true hard money lender, uh, like, like a pure hard money lender, where, you know, the, the old school hard money lenders were not bank funded and we're not bank funded. So that allows us to be very flexible with our how we move through a deal. We can, you know, very quickly close. And ultimately, the underwriting in our space that in, in our business is done by people that know the market very well. Myself, my partners, we, we understand the markets we lend. We don't lend nationwide for that reason. We lend where we know. And um, so in essence, like an appraisal, nothing, there's some great appraisers out there and there's some not great appraisers out there. I'm not willing to flip a coin to, to go with one and say, hey, his appraisal looks good. I'm going to base my numbers on this value. When I've seen appraisals come in two, $300,000 off, you know, 50, 60% higher than I would be. So I look at it and I just, as an underwriter of my of our own deals, I, I look at it and go, I know what the values are. I'm confident in the values. And there's really nothing in an appraiser that's really going to change that in my mindset. So we don't really use appraisals. The times that we do, we might get a backup scenario on like a large commercial project or something that's just kind of not conventional in our wheelhouse. But you know, 90% of what we do doesn't doesn't require an appraisal and therefore allows us to close quite quickly when we need to. Makes sense. And yeah, I totally agree with uh, appraisals. They Banks use them all the time, but, uh, but appraisers vary from appraiser to appraiser. So how are you able to close a deal within 24 hours? Uh, a lot of that does rely on the fact that we don't need appraisals and, I, and, and knowing our local market. So the fact that we know the market, know where the deals are, we know what a good number looks like, you know, what'll happen. I mean, we've closed them the same day before where somebody calls me at 9 a.m. We close at 3 p.m. It's, it's, you know, it sounds crazy, in this, but it's really not. If you know the market, it's not that, you know, you should be able to do that as a private lender. And, um, but a lot of times what will happen is you might have title that's already in, title work has already come in and, you know, lender, a different lender didn't, wasn't able to deliver the day before. And they go, Hey, this deal is going to blow up. They'll call us and go, can you save it? And I'll look at the numbers. I'll look at what they got. And they say, Hey, I got the cash to close decent experience, whatever it may be. And once we say, yeah, we'll go, we'll wire it in the next day. We, we run lean. We run, we run light. We're like a, we're like a mobile app for a version of like a, instead of a PC, like our, our office runs lean and light. We're flexible. We can move quickly. And we're just designed and built that way for, you know, that reason. Mm-hmm. Well, in bringing a deal to you, what are potential debtors? What should they be bringing to you? I usually tell people right away, just just send me the address, the purchase price and the renovation costs of the project. And I'll know right away based on the purchase price and the renovation costs if we're lining up, if there's any red flags I need to dig into, because that's where people hit or miss pretty quickly on a deal. You know, if they're too high in the purchase price, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know the market well. There's a whole lot of red flags that go off there. If they're too low on the renovation costs, a whole lot of red flags there because you can't overpay and then underdo the renovation costs and think that it's going to be a profitable scenario because if you don't put enough renovation costs into it, you're going to have a lesser product than the than the comps that you think you're getting and so forth. So it kind of steamrolls into the into the scenario where I can tell a lot by the numbers right away. So when somebody's though on point with their you know their acquisition price and then their their renovation numbers are good, then it's like okay, there's a, there's a sigh of relief from my side going, hey, we got a good deal here. There's you know there's a good deal on the table. And then I'll you know, ask a few more questions, just kind of feel for the person. But usually if, if the numbers are right, everything kind of flows smoothly. If the numbers are wrong, there's, you know, that that little like spider sense going off in the lender's, you know, head thinking, mm, you know, what don't I know? And you start to see what skeletons are in the closet at that point. It doesn't mean the deal is dead. It just means there's going to be some more questions. Yeah. 
Well, Ian, tell us about your company, how it is that you work, and you said you don't work nationwide. So where are the areas that you do work? Yeah, so we, um, I have uh, several partners. We all kind of take different areas, but um, we land in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, North Carolina. Those are our kind of our core states that we lend in. You know, we do look at some other stuff in like Florida and stuff like that, but you're talking about lower LTCs and very, very conservative scenarios. But that's really where we stay and that's where we operate in our space. And we um, we run a small office. We, you know, we keep it that way. Like I said earlier, just so we can remain mobile. There's not a lot of overhead. It's not clunky. Over the years, I've built a few different businesses from anywhere from lighter businesses management wise and overhead wise to super heavy overhead businesses. And I've just found for my own personality and taste that I prefer, you know, less overhead, even though it's, I don't have like a 400 person office and I don't want a 400 person office. This is not my taste. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's just, you have to, you have to have a lot of pieces moving. It's just a lot more headaches. And I've just kind of, we've all, me and my partners have fallen into the idea and very comfortable with it is less headaches is better than more headaches and just, you know, stay, assess the risk on any deal that we have in front of us first protect the money and then second make money and that's how we just kind of run our business and stay light with it well if a, a potential lender wants to uh, potentially work with you they need the address the purchase price renovation costs what else do they actually need i mean do they need experience how much money do they need to put in does it matter does it vary from deal to deal it varies from deal to deal i would say that's a, um that's fair so you know, experience. So if you have a 200, a quarter million dollar uh, renovation project, you know, I'm going to want to see some experience that you can execute on that because renovation projects are where, you, you know, even if you buy right, you still can screw that up. So, I, you know, experience is relevant then. If you're buying like a, a rental property, uh, I don't usually care about the like credit's not that big of a deal. But if you're buying a rental property, I want to see that you can get out of it very clean because my my notes are one year long. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in a year from now, if you have a 600 credit score, you're not bankable and you're trying to do a rental and a refi. I don't want your house. I don't want to take it. I don't want anything to do with it. I just want the money back. So each scenario kind of has, you know, one. I'm looking at the exit on the on the project to make sure that it's a clean exit. So no experience, quarter million dollar project. That's a messy exit. Low credit and a refinance to try to get out. That's a messy exit. So the exit has to make sense uh, up front to for us to to look at it. As far as money down, that's just a rough feel. But right now, you kind of see maybe thirty percent down is pretty common. Um, could be north of that or south of that, give or take a few, but that's about where you're typically going to find a deal. If you're finding significantly more than that, it means I don't think that you're going to get the numbers that you're going to get on the way out. And you do. And I say, okay, well, if you want to place that bet on it, you can bring more cash. And that's kind of how we look at it. Mm-hmm. What is your advice, your best advice here for someone who is thinking of purchasing a property and they are slim on the experience side. I usually tell you know so if you so if you're looking to purchase a property, I get this question a lot on like forums and stuff. I always have the same answer, which is learn your market and learn to market. So if you do those two things and you're new and that's what you're trying to do, that's going to serve you incredibly well because learning your market means knowing 
everything about your farm area, your farm area being usually like whatever square mile, whatever it may be. I mean, I'm talking like knowing exactly when I say a certain address, you know, hey, I'm buying over there. I'm not buying over there. And when you start to learn your market, you know what a good deal is. The problem is when you don't know your market, you don't know if you're sitting on a good deal. I learned this early on in my career when I was learning to market. I learned early on, okay, I got to get the phone to ring. Like it's easy to learn how to wholesale or something like that. It's easy. Like the logistics are simple. You can learn it in like a day, but then you go, okay, well now I need the phone to ring. So something happens. So I remember doing a, a mailing campaign to like all of Northern New Jersey. It was like, I don't know. I had like $10,000 mailing, you know, single mail or something like that. And I was like, this is awesome. The phone's ringing. It's great. But I have, you know, everybody's calling, giving, saying, Hey, I want to sell my house for this much. I want to sell my house for this much. And I was like, I have no idea if that's a good deal. And if I don't know if it's a good deal, I don't know my market well enough. So, you know, I advise people to like learn every single, uh, establish your market. There's, there's money in every market. Low end, high end. There's money in every market. Learn the um, the on sale, uh, on market comps on your MLS. Learn what properties sold for, renovated. Learn what they sold for, not renovated. Like, get a feel for that. It's not too hard to like get a, get a grasp on that. So then, when that that wholesaler sends you that deal, or that realtor brings you that deal and goes, "Hey, my purchase price is this much," you don't even have to go to your computer. You know right away if I get it. If I get that price in this area that is a good deal. And then, so that's learning your market. And then ultimately you're going to want to likely scale and you're going to want to likely, you know, not be reliant on a single source of marketing, such as maybe just like a realtor is one source of marketing. Uh, so you're going to probably end up learning to do mailers, do social media, stuff like that. So you want to learn to market because eventually you just have to get the phone to ring. So you learn your market and then you learn to market. And those two things will carry you throughout your entire career. Yes, excellent uh, advice there. Well, Ian, in closing, what are your final thoughts and your uh, your best recommendations? Final thoughts, I think, you know, even in this changing market, there there's still a lot of deals out there and nobody really knows where it's going. There's a lot of uncertainty on the table still. And I, I think the ultimate thing is just to always buy lower buy low. Like even in a great market, there's always deals. Even in a bad market, there's always deals. If you're buying low enough, it doesn't matter. If you're buying too high in either of those markets, it, you know, an, uh, the only thing that's going to save you is an appreciating market that'll maybe, you know, cover up that mistake, but we're no longer there. So really buy low, be patient, you know, and, and we're in a market now where I would say a lot of the newer, you don't see as many new investors in here right now. You see a lot more experienced investors playing around, but it doesn't mean you can't be a new investor. It just means be patient, buy low. It's never a good idea out of lack of patience to just get into a deal. Get doing into it, getting into a deal, just do a deal. That do a dealitis is not a good fit. You're just going to burn yourself out. Absolutely. And I know that from experience. <laughs> so. we all, uh, we've all been there. I've, we've all done deals to just do deals. It's not, it's yes. part of the road. It's part of the, yeah. yeah. Patience is a virtue. Yes, indeed. Well, Ian, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for being with us today and have a great day. Thank you very much. Enlightened investors, don't go yet. I have just a couple of quick requests. You know the drill, like, share, and subscribe. But we also need your help to build our audience. So please go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. I'll be most grateful. Until next time, prosper and live abundantly. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steed Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. 
As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.